are listening to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring you the best tactics, strategies, and actionable insights for change through our powerful interviews with change management practitioners and leaders. And now here's your host, Brian Gorman. Welcome to this edition of the Change Management Review Podcast. I'm Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review. My guest today is Beth Banks-Cohen of Adra Change Architects. Welcome, Beth. Thanks so much for uh, having me on, on your podcast, Brian. I'm really excited to be here. Beth, when you and I began to talk about recording this podcast, you opened our conversation by saying you are interested in passing on your approach to change to the next generation. That's a commitment I have also made. And so let's begin by talking about that personal and professional commitment. Yeah, I mean, I it's very funny because I didn't have anybody pass on their approach to me when I started in change. When I started in change in the 80s, in the company that I was in, in the area that I was in, really people didn't really talk about it. And I found myself during those times thinking about, oh, I wish I had somebody to talk to. I wish I had somebody I could learn from. And so when I started to think about where I am in my career, which is closer to the end than the beginning, I felt like I really wanted to be able to pass on some really critical things that I think newcomers could know or should know, and also uh, helping them see that they're part of a continuum that didn't just start with them. I felt like I was sort of starting something and until I started to get into change management and realized that there were plenty of people that came before me that had been talking about it in lots of different ways. And so I, I feel like that's a really important message for the new, for the people coming up now, for the younger generation that's coming up now. One of the things that really brought me very early on to that commitment was training with Daryl Connor in the second half of the 1980s. Daryl was always training his clients in change management. And when he and I got into a conversation about that, he said, it's it's really very simple. He said, if I can teach them to do everything I know how to do, I can continue to learn and grow and pass that continuing learning on. But if I have to keep doing it over and over and over again, I can't grow. So that's always been a piece of my motivation. And I know that even now, close to 40 years later, I'm continuing to grow and and pass that knowledge on as well. So Beth, what is your approach to change management? I have an approach that I think has been born out of all of my experiences. And I I really like what you said about what Daryl said, because I, I do feel like one of the things that I've always tried to do is to leave my clients smarter about change after the project. And so that sometimes they may not even call me for small things because they already know what to do and they know how to do it well, but they'll just call me for the big things. And that's always been my commitment as well. And I I also am aware that that is not the commitment of every change practitioner out there and uh, not so much the small practitioners, but sort of the big box, right? Big box likes to go in. They like to sort of do everything for the client and then leave. The client doesn't know any more after they left. And so they, they sort of build in this built-in need. And I, what I find about that is then when they come to me, because something didn't go well, 
I have to have that same conversation over and over and over again, like Daryl was trying to avoid. Today, I have conversations that I feel like I had 30 years ago that I honestly wish that I wasn't having. So, and I think that that's partly our profession, but I also think that that's partly business people as well. So we taught business people, but they didn't teach the people that came after them. And I think that that's another another um, issue that I think that we're dealing with right now as it relates to my frame, my framework. So I have a framework that I use. I know there's lots of sort of approaches and methodologies and mine is basically very simple. And I created it to be simple so that my clients would be able to remember what the different parts of the framework were. And so that when they were thinking about change, they could think about it in ways that made sense to them. So I have four parts of my framework, discover, strategize, execute, and sustain. It's really simple. It's probably words that other frameworks use as well. Um, But within those, I think what differentiates what I do with, with what others do is that it really is focused. That discovery is a really large portion of what goes on because I feel like it's the step that gets skipped most often. And it's the step that leads down the road to not being able to sustain a change or not being able to execute the way that you need to. And so we spent a lot of time in discovery, thinking about not just what the goal is from a change perspective, but the business goal, but also what's getting in the way and what's helping. And also what's the context of what this change is being entered into. And I, when I work with groups, I tell them that, yes, you may seem, you may feel like this is really slow to start, but then we'll be able to go really, really fast afterwards. And if you think about sort of this whole idea of agile change, which I'll put in quotes, I think part of what makes a change, any change successful and able to move quickly is when you're grounded in all of that, that base knowledge that allows you to then be able to make decisions quickly, flip on a dime, go in a different direction, because you, you understand the context, you understand what could get in your way, you understand what's what's helping you and you understand what the end goal is. I'm absolutely with you on what you call discovery. There are so many things that in my experience, most change management methodologies just don't address in some of my language that I've used on, on this podcast and webinars and so forth. What are the organizational anchors that are holding it in place? And which of those do they have to let go of? Which of those do they have to replace? Which of those do they have to make adjustments to if they're actually going to make move forward? Who are the key influencers in the organization that are going to make sure that we are successful or not successful? And what is our strategy for engaging them to support rather than resist the, the change? And on and on and on. So that discovery phase, as you call it, Absolutely, absolutely agree is critical. Yes. And and I I think no matter what we call it, whether we call it so roadblocks or organizational anchors or whatever we call it, it's really important to know those things. And like you said about the influencers, I call them stakeholders, but it's the same thing. I think there's another piece that's part of the second part of my framework, which is strategize, that I think is also really critical. And that is uh, scenario planning. So I have my groups go through a scenario to say, okay, if this is the change, how is it going to affect this group or that group or the next group? And I have them go through and actually say, how is it going to affect every sort of grouping of people in your company so that we don't lose anything, right? So that if you if you say, okay, we're going to go virtual, we're going to be virtual 100% of the time, or we're going to be virtual 50% of the time, how does that affect your cleaning staff? 
we never think about that. We think they're just going to adapt, right? And they're just going to sort of do whatever. But how does that affect them, even if they're not employees of yours? But how does it affect your ability to get what you need from those kinds of services if you are doing it in a radically different way? And so just not even to say, okay, we're not going to do it or we're going to do it. I mean, you can say we're going to do it differently based on these conversations around some different scenarios. But it's most important to really understand how it affects everybody, because we often think about how it affects the company, like what's the end goal? What's the goal for the for the organization? But we don't often think about sort of what's the effect on that analyst who's, you know, so many tiers below the president or the CEO, how does it affect them? And I think there's two pieces to that. One is how does it affect them from a, uh, just in a general perspective, but really how does it affect their role? So in change also, there are, there's another approach that I use called, I call it change in three parts of the mind. So there, there are three parts of the mind. There's the co- cognitive or the thinking part, the affective or the feeling part. We know a lot about those two parts. We don't know as much about this, another third part called the cognitive or doing part. And I use a tool, the Colby index that really explores just that part. But what's important around that part of the mind for change is that if we change someone's job radically, they are not necessarily going to be interested in the job that you've changed it to because of this cognitive or doing part of the mind, because that's where we get our instincts, where how we instinctively take action when we're trying to solve a problem. And if you change my ability to use my instincts as part of your organizational change, I may or may not be able to to go with you right on that journey. And you may not you may not be happy about that. And so it's also thinking about it, not just from a what does it do at an organizational level, but what does it do at that individual level and thinking about then building a plan based on, okay, so if these are all the changes, where do they fit? Are they cognitive changes? Are they affective changes? Are they cognitive changes? Like, do I need to learn something? And do I need to feel differently? Do I need to have a different set of values? Or do I need to use my instincts in a different way that may or may not be natural to me? So it's really being able to explore it down to that level. And it may seem overwhelming when you're talking about a change that affects tens of thousands of people, but there are ways to sort of level it up a little bit uh, so that it's not each person each thing one 10,000 times, but more categories. I think it's important to realize that change is built one percent at a time. And if you're making a change for 10,000 people, 10,000 people have to decide they're coming with you. And so the scenario planning, as, as you're describing it, really gets to what's in this change for me. Wherever I am in the organization, what does this mean for me? What does it mean um, in terms of the, the skills I need, in terms of the ways I need to think about my colleagues, my my responsibilities, my clients or customers, those that I interact with both internally and externally. And you said something as you were describing that, that I want to come back to for just a moment, which is you referenced instinct. And I remember in our conversation before the podcast, you said most people migrate to positions that utilize their instinct. So being aware of the fact that this change may make my position something that I'm no longer instinctively aligned with, I think is, is important. 
it's critically important. I think it's something that companies overlook because they don't think they don't think of it that way. They don't think of people that way, right? So for example, you may not even realize it, but if your instinct is to gather and share information, you know, you're not going to go into a, a position in a company where all you do is work with minimal information and fly by the seat of your pants most of the time, right? And if you and if you love if your instinct is to fly by the seat of your pants and have as little information as possible, you're not going to go into a position where all you do all day is research, right? The same thing, you know, you're you're not going to go into a regulated industry if you're the type of person that never met a, a rule they didn't want to bend, right? Because it's it's just not going to be, it's just going to be comfortable for you. So if things get changed, that's an issue. You know, I once I once worked in, a, in an organization where they actually had a huge issue with people that worked on the shop floor because they had bought a factory of people who made lawn furniture and turned it into a pharmaceutical manufacturing factory. And they kept the same people. And then they couldn't understand why nobody followed any of the rules. And I, I said to them, you know, making lawn furniture isn't like, it's not, you don't use the same instincts. You're asking people to literally work against their grain every single day because they were making lawn furniture because that was the comfortable for them, right? Now you're asking them to do something that's outside of their comfort zone when it comes to taking, instinctively taking action and not to minimize the fact that they had to learn a lot more, obviously, but they're just what's in it for them. They're not even sure because they're pretty much making maybe a little bit more, but not that much more. So really to your point before, like what's in it for them, it's those kinds of things that are puzzling to people and they can't, they think, oh, they said to me, oh, we're just going to train them more. I'm like, oh yeah, that's going to help. It'll get them to a point, but it's not going to get them where you need them to be. And it was just a very funny conversation, but that's the kind of thing. It's like when you when you hire somebody for sales and you say to them in the interview, here, sell me this paperclip. And they like can sell you that paperclip like there's no tomorrow. But then when you hire them, you hand them 10 binders and say, you have to memorize everything before we can send you out to put you in front of a doctor. You've hired the wrong person potentially because that's not who they are. They're that I can sell you a paperclip. They are not the, I'm going to do tons of research and then decide what I'm going to say to the doctor and try to tell them everything I know about the product. And so it's, it's the, it, that's the piece of it, the instinct piece of it, that is really in my, in my opinion, the missing link when changes don't work because the people who are implementing the change or advocating for the change are not the people that have to change the most, right? The president hardly ever has to change but it's the people below them that do. I would challenge that only in that the president has led the company to be what it is. She or he most likely has to change how they're leading, how they're relating to people below them in order to make this change happen. And their instinct probably is still at play. Their knowledge is still at play. Their emotion is still at play. Very much the same. Yes, I totally agree. I sort of feel like, you know, when you're when you're leading a change, it looks really different than when you're receiving that change, especially at lower levels, but really at any level. And so I think it does feel different. And I agree that a, a good leader will be changing the way that they approach things and always be learning and growing about what's the best way to interact with everyone around them. I mean, in order to drive the organization to where they believe that they need the organization to go. So great leader, good leaders, great leaders will always do that. But I do think that the change looks different when you're on the other side of it. And I think it's it's something that honestly, I think leaders 
might've known that once when they were the recipients of change, but I think it's something that people forget. And their instinct is always going to be the one that wins out because they're in charge. Beth, earlier you put agile change in quotes. Yeah. I'd like to come back to that. Yeah, agile. I, I love sort of all the talk about agile now because agile change is basically what we've always done, right? It's, you know, you, you make a change, you see what's working, see what's not, you make corrections, you continue going, see what's working, see what's not, make corrections. I mean, it's something that good change practitioners have have really always done, unless you're so married to some methodology that it doesn't allow you to do that. But most of the methodologies that I've seen have that built in. To me, that's what agile change is. It's being able to implement something, see what's working, see what's not, and move on to the next thing. And I know that's not everybody's definition or everybody's experience, but I, I do think that that's, to me, that's what real agile change is. But here's the thing about agile change that I think gets lost, is that when we talk about agile change, often that whole discovery gets put to the wayside, right? And I think that's the downfall of agile change, because I just worked with a company where they said to me, well, we just um, we just thought we'd just put something out there and see how it worked. And I'm like, OK, well, that's great. But did you define your vision? Did you look at your roadblocks, look at your stakeholders? Did you talk about scenarios? Did you talk about context? Like, did you do any of that work before you just put something out there? And they said, no, we just we want it to be agile. So we just put it out there. I'm like, you can be agile and still have that background knowledge. And maybe that's my instincts of, you know, wanting to have information before I go out there and do something. But to me, it's not either or like you can be agile and still have the context and the background to basically be able to run with it. But at least, you know, even when you put in your first iteration of that change, that it's, it's not going to blow everything up because you have the context, you understand the roadblocks, you understand the anchors and who your key influencers are, who your stakeholders are and how it's going to affect people. And then agile change away. Like, so that's to me, the biggest difference is to other people, agile change who don't have a change background, by the way, because I'm sure no change practitioners do that, but people who don't like this person didn't have a change background. They just they just thought, oh, we'll just put it out there and see what happens. That's really great. But it really, I'm in this particular instance, really blew up because it was the wrong, it was the wrong thing. And it was, it. I mean, it sort of flew in the face of if they had done some background, they would have known. So that's why I put it in quotes, because I feel like it's, I feel like it's being, I feel like it's like another term that we just sort of throw out there. You know, like I get requests for things and they say, oh, can you do agile change? I'm like, I always do agile change. I don't know. Agile with a capital A. Like, I'm not (laughs) sure. But, you know, and and we've taken something from from and we've taken something from IT, right, from the from that world, which basically was a step forward for them, because instead of like getting your requirements and going away for a year and then showing up with a solution a year later, now they do it iteratively. It makes it makes a lot of sense. But then when you try to sort of put that on other things, you have to remember that they're still getting the requirements. They're not not doing that part. And I think that's the part that people forget. They think agile is just fast. It can be fast, but you got to you gotta start somewhere. Beth, we're going to have to wrap up here. I'm sorry, I'm having such a good time with you. <laughs> no, I know. Anything else that you'd like to pass on to our listeners about how you're approaching change and what you'd like them to know about how they might approach it? So I do think that change practitioners can sometimes, me included, can sometimes really get caught up in sort of all of the things that we know and realize that our clients don't care about 
everything we know. I mean, they care because they want a great solution, but they don't, they don't care to know it. So really being able to, as you are working with your clients to really be able to censor yourself to say, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to tell them. And if they want more information, they'll ask me, but I don't need to tell them everything. So I think there's that piece of it, but also really be thinking about like what you and I have committed to, which is how are we going to pass this on in a way that 20 years from now, we're not going to be having the same conversations. So how do we talk to our clients to teach them? And also, how do we impress upon them the importance of them passing on what they've learned about change to their constituents as well? Because I definitely see that as a big gap. And I think if everybody can be committed to making the next generation smarter and making our clients smarter, I think the change profession will be in a much better place. And we won't be having the same conversations that we had 30 and 40 years ago with our clients. And we can sort of help companies really use change as that strategic advantage that we we know they can, but we sometimes don't get to because we're still slogging through the, the stuff that we we have always had to do. Thank you, Beth Banks-Cohen of Adra Change Architects. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Change Management Review Podcast. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.